Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A month from now, many middle and high schoolers across the Portland area will return to in-person learning, at least part-time, for the first time in a year. Meanwhile, bars and restaurants in Multnomah County can now offer more indoor dining up to half of their normal capacity. Are we inching back to something resembling normalcy? I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, you'll hear from two of my colleagues about these baby steps towards our old lives. In the first half of the show, education reporter Eder Campuzano talks about how students are faring. Campuzano talked to four metro area teens and preteens about their last year and what it means to go back to in-person instruction. We'll hear from them, too. Then, food writer Michael Russell talks about the state of the Portland bar and dining scene, the takeout revolution, and when he plans to eat indoors. First, here's Edder. Edder Campuzano, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Hey, thanks for having me again. We're hitting all these odd milestones um, as we're, you know, emerging from the pandemic slightly. Uh, why'd you want to do this story? I, being the education reporter, vividly remember where I was the night that Kate Brown's office issued its two-week closure order. Two weeks, right? Um, right. That our schools would be closed so that we can mitigate the impacts of COVID-19 on the state of Oregon. I was sitting in my studio, basically studio apartment, waiting for the press release to go live so that I could publish the story once I got my confirmation. And it just got me wondering, what did students think? Like, when did students find out? When did it really hit them that they were not going to go back into their school buildings for X amount of time initially for three weeks and then for the rest of the school year? And now, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been a full year and what do they think about that return? The the sentiment is very much cautious optimism, right? Like they miss seeing their friends. They miss um, having those routine sort of person-to-person interactions. But, you know, for one of them, they've enjoyed the flexibility that mm-hmm. distance learning has given them. And the sort of kind of like hybrid schedule will offer. And another one just, you know, wants to get back to the library and read some books. <laughs> well, that's uh, that that was a very... Um you know, practical uh, interview uh, with Eric uh, Tello Contreras, who, uh, tell us about Eric. He's a eighth grader, right? Right. So Eric is an eighth grader at um, Rachel Carson Middle School in Beaverton, and he's part of the environmental program there. So what, what he was telling me about was how he does sort of miss seeing people in person, having interactions with his with his friends and just kind of having that in-person experience. But the thing that he missed the most about being in the school building is the time that he got to spend in the library, just because he really likes to, you know, take time to reflect and kind of think and just sort of hang out, right? And so he was telling me about this book series called Warrior Cats that he's really into. And he does not have access to his favorite book series right now, which I would imagine, I mean, if I were 
in eighth grade and I could not get my hands on my Harry Potter books, I would have been very upset. So yeah. um, we talked a lot about that. All right. He- here's Eric in his own words. If I could sum up my my year in one word, it would be disappointing because many events that I had planned were canceled and I couldn't go out much. A return to in-person schooling means a lot to me because then I could have conversation with my peers and also go to the library. My favorite thing about the library would be the ability to like be able to choose whatever book I would like to read and also to be able to relax there. So we've got the the practical concerns about kids just not being able to get access on books that they want to read and places that aren't in their home to to relax and to learn. Um, what other experiences um, are kids feeling like they missed out on uh, in the last year? I spoke to another uh, Beaverton middle schooler, Danica Bishop. She is a seventh grader at Raleigh Hills Middle. And one of the things that she really missed, I mean, she was on the basketball team. And obviously, as soon as um, athletic competitions went by the wayside and she couldn't go into the gym, you know, at school, she couldn't practice anymore. And so for a while, she had a basketball hoop outside of her house, you know, in her driveway. Um, and that for her was kind of a kind of a respite. You know, it was something to do, sort of keep busy, but without the, you know, basketball is a team sport. And so when yep. you're just practicing on your own, you miss a lot of um, of what actually makes the team sport, you know, really valuable. Here's Danica. Um, hi, I'm, I'm Danica Bishop. And if I could sum up my year with one word, it would probably be um, stressful. And that's mainly because, um, you know, school, doing it at home, having to do lessons and, you know, computers cutting out and everything. It's just been really stressful to pay attention and to, you know, keep your motivation up and just also hearing about, like, all this stuff that's been happening. That's also been very um, stressful. In the next three months, I'm really looking forward to hopefully going back to school, um, actually meeting all my teachers in person because so far I've really just seen their faces over my computer screen. It'd be nice to actually meet them and have conversations that don't consist of muting after every sentence. What kind of emotions do you hear from students throughout the year when they talked about, you know, trying to learn on a computer instead of in a classroom? Well, you know, this is kind of a quirk of the reporting for this story. Um, and for so many of the stories that I've done, especially recently, you know, you hear about the pandemic wall and kids have definitely been feeling it as far as uh, I've been able to tell, because every interview that I did for this story, when I was putting out feelers and chatting with students and setting things up, every I, I would tell all of them, it's up to you, but we can either talk over the phone or we can do Zoom. Personally, I prefer the phone because I am zoomed out. And every single kid was like, yes, please, phone. I don't need to see your face. Let's do it over the phone. I don't need to Zoom. And so that was kind of a, you know, that that that's what I've been hearing from a lot of students, right? That just sitting in front of the screen and having these sort of digital interactions is wearing. And those person-to-person interactions are, are really, really, really what they miss, even if they're total introverts, right? Like I've spoken to a few kids who are like, yeah, I'm an introvert, but I still, I still need that every once in a while. And that's the thing that I miss about 
being in school in person. Well, that might be a good way to tee up Elizabeth Dimitrova, a junior at Centennial High School. If I could sum up the last year for me in one word, it would be educational because I think that I've learned a lot through you know, having more control over things and having to deal with lots of problems and help other people and work through lots of big issues going on. And I think it's taught me a lot. A return to Centennial High School in-person learning for me means good memories, uh, getting to, you know, see the people from old ones and make new ones, um, again, with the people I care about and the things I like to do. I've spent a ton of time with my family. My family's always been, like, close, but it's just given us a lot of time. We play this card game called Bridge Bullets all the time. It's not a common game. It's, it's, I think it's probably just, you know, something they know because my family's from Bulgaria. So um, we played that a lot. I watch movies with my mom. Um, me and my dad watch things. You know, I do things with my brother now more than we used to be able to. Um, so that's been I think a really positive thing that's been able to happen is just getting to spend a lot of time with my family and do lots of fun things with them. So yeah, it's it's missing out on just those memories of bumping into your friends or classmates in the halls. That's something that you know might not seem like much for just a few months, but it's got to be huge after spending uh, a year outside of outside of their schools. Right. And, you know, I think one of the things that sort of lost is that for um, high schoolers in particular, it's for those of us who have the luxury of being able to work from home, a lot of them went through um, sort of the same thing where you hear, oh, extended spring break, because that's the way that a lot of districts characterize it at the beginning. Extended mm-hmm. spring break, I can do, uh, like Elizabeth was telling me that she really, she's into baking already. And so she wasn't doing sourdough starters. She was like, you know, getting really into the craft. And for the longest time, she's also kept this uh, Google spreadsheet where she's baking her own music catalog. And so she just <laughs> figured that spring break, like this three week spring break would be a great time to, you know, really refine the artist names and her like labeling, you know, tinker with the genres and get like these playlists that she loves making. And she's just, you know, expanded the tabs at the bottom of that spreadsheet, which is, you know, at once a fun thing that she did to kind of keep her busy at the very beginning when she thought it was just going to be for two weeks but, you know, pretty soon it obviously starts to wear on you and she's looking for these little ways to keep connected with her classmates and her friends. What can you tell me about uh, Alex Ogdai, a, a sophomore at Lake Oswego High you spoke with for the story? Right. So Alex is actually one of those kind of, um, you know, hyper focused students, I would say, not necessarily in terms of like, we didn't talk that much about academics, but for example, The Oregon legislature is considering a bill that would allow basically school districts to consider the diversity of their workforce when they're doing layoffs, sort of minimizing the role that Mm -hmm. seniority plays, which is an entirely different story, obviously. But he testified in front of the House Committee on Education saying that he's never had a teacher who looks like him. And so that's one of the things that's kind of compelled him to, to testify and to, uh, speak in favor of the measure, uh, or the potential bill. And so it, just that on its own, right? Like this kid, this, this teenager is testifying in front of the Oregon house. He had an internship at city hall that he did remotely, um, and a little bit in person last year. So he's really active in his school. He's the sophomore class president, but even he was telling me 
I'm kind of fine with the way that things are right now because he does get enough sort of in-person interaction and the extracurriculars that he does. And for him, it's been nice to basically have his like his day finish around noon. And then he kind of just gets to go off and hang out with a friend for a while, which is not something that you really get to do when you're typically a sophomore in high school, right? You're like there from 8 a.m. until like 3 p.m. And then you get to go out and do your thing. But he said that the flexibility that virtual learning has offered him is something that he really appreciates. And honestly, speaking to him sounded more like my college experience than it did my high school experience just because <laughs> of how much he just did between classes. All right, here, here's Alex in his own words. If I could sum up the last year in one word, that word would be change. Because I think what we're seeing, you know, regarding the pandemic and schools and the situation and social change is, you know, decades of progress all occurring in one year in a fast moving and such a fast paced environment. I think returning to in-person classrooms is that the last little piece of normalcy that we're lacking in our current situation. You know, we see sports, we see social gatherings come back, but having that rigid schedule and seeing people in the hallways is going to be that last piece that we need to bring it all together. That's great to hear from those four different students across the metro area and their experiences. But, you know, does do you get the sense that people uh, are excited for this level of um, return, like from the from the teaching and educator side? Or is it being viewed as more of a stressor after being so acclimated to remote teaching for so long? The reactions that I've heard are all over the place. Everything from, well, it's just the last quarter of the school year when we, why would we suddenly pivot with 25% of the school year left? You know, it's better to have, um, continuity in making sure that we're making this experience that we're currently having the best it can possibly be. And then focusing on, you know, a full throated return in the fall if infection rates allow it, right? And that's one of the big things. If infection rates allow it is kind of the larger couching of that. Um, so that's one side. And then the other side is we will take what we can get. It's important to get students specifically for the social, emotional supports that they need. Some educators are saying, yes, we, we, we need to get these students back in front of a teacher, even if it's only for two hours a day, two days a week, or if it's for a full day, two days a week, or two hours a day, four days a week, whatever our system is, we should make sure that we can kind of support it. And so those are the two sort of, I would say, opposite ends. And then there's the entire gray area is just full of everything from, I believe that my students do need to be in person with instructors, but I don't think that my school facilities are ready for it. What does the um, recently approved um, rescue package, what will that mean for helping Oregon students return to classrooms? It's It gets a little bit tricky when you talk about the federal aid that's coming into Oregon districts. So pretty much at the beginning of the pandemic, the uh, Congress provided money that would support districts as they were figuring out virtual learning. And so that money was available pretty soon after it passed. I believe it was last March. And mm -hmm. by the time that the school year had started in earnest, Portland Public Schools, for example, had already spent something like $20 million in getting virtual learning started and to support students. But their part of that first aid package was only about $8 million. And so the next 
sort of set of aid that came through was at the tail end of December on the federal front. And the details started trickling out in January. And that's a $500 million pool statewide. And the way that it works is districts spend what they need to spend and then ask for reimbursement for expenses that would qualify for that money. So HEPA filters, um, maybe even like construction to, you know, tear down a wall and (laughs) build a classroom out a little bit to have more space for people, PPE. But that money isn't available for districts yet, even though the Oregon Department of Education knew how much it would be getting in January. It isn't until, you know, the middle of this month that they'll basically be able to let districts tap into it. And so the next round provides $1 billion for Oregon schools. But again, we don't know when that's going to come online. But we do know that it's supposed to be used um, in addition to everything for virtual learning. Districts can can use it for, for, for that and to, you know, kind of strengthen their support for that. But state officials and even district officials that I talk to say that they anticipate using the bulk of that money to figure out a way to get students back into classrooms because that that federal aid does not expire you 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 can tap into that federal aid until the end of 2022 so it's very definitely been you know passed and doled out with the idea that it, we're not going to just be seeing the ramifications of covid-19 on schools th- this year and last year it's going to be an ongoing thing and so here's the flexibility to deal with it beyond just the 2020, 2021 school year. So does this uh, return to um, in-person for, for some students, again, part-time with all these restrictions? I mean, is this like like dipping your toe into a big swimming pool uh, and the big swimming pool is normalcy, I guess? Are, are we taking those little baby steps? Well, no, I think the sobering thing about speaking to all of these students is that they are all sort of craving a return to normal, but they're also not expecting it, right? To be a hundred percent right off the bat. Elizabeth in particular, her parents are very, very cautious about um, their COVID precautions. The mm-hmm. most interaction that she really gets with other people is when she and her brother go on walks. Uh, they'll socially distance if they come across somebody that they know and just have a conversation She's chatted with some of her friends from her driveway, but otherwise she's, you know, not really seeing a lot of people and she's craving that sort of sense of normalcy and is looking forward to having a little bit of it. But she's also really cautious, right? She also wants to make sure that she's being as safe as possible. She'll Mm -hmm. take whatever normal she can get, but she also wants to make sure that she's not going to be a super spreader, basically, um, and that she's, uh, you know, taking all the mitigation measures that she needs to just to make sure that she's keeping everybody happy and healthy. Well, we hope that uh, she has a good return uh, next month and uh, everyone stays healthy and happy. And thank you for bringing her story and others to to the paper and to the pod. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, I think my favorite thing about working on this story and then sharing it with with you in this format is we really focused on the student angle here. I mean, my editor and I were going back and forth on how best to tackle this sort of upcoming one year anniversary of the two week lockdown order um, or school closure order. And after, you know, after a lot of going back and forth, student centered just kind of rose to the top. And I'm just glad that it turned out the way that it did. Let's take a break, then come back and hear from Michael Russell. 
Michael Russell, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. My pleasure, Andrew. So we are now entering, you know, uncharted waters since the one year anniversary of the pandemic where we're in a moderate risk level here in the Multnomah County area. Restaurants and bars can open up ever more slightly. And how are people feeling in the industry about about these changes? I think every time there's a loosening of restrictions, I, I hear two things. I hear one side of people who think this is all uh, a little bit premature and they seem surprised whenever there's a lifting of restrictions. And then on the other side, I hear business owners who are very happy to be able to uh, get back to work or at the very least, uh, you know, increase the amount of tables they have at their businesses. Um, I don't know how you resolve those two sides of this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, I don't know that everybody tracks the numbers quite as closely as as say you do um, in your job at the Oregonian. Uh, So I think sometimes even though the guidelines are seem pretty clear and we telegraph days, if not, you know, a week in advance, Hey, it's looking like, this county will move to this risk level, uh, uh, specifically looking at Multnomah County being the largest. Um, I think it still takes people by surprise when they hear, oh, wait, there's we can have indoor dining again? No way. That, that seems crazy. When we're talking about percentage of capacity, like how significant is it for business owners who might be on the fence to be able to have, you know, 50 percent of their, you know, normal capacity in their in their bars or restaurants? It's a wide range because there's some businesses like imagine a little hole in the wall brunch place where, you know, you're really only going to be able to get a couple tables indoors anyway. You might decide not to do it versus a place like, you know, the old spaghetti factory where at 25% capacity, that's what it was a month ago. They could have gone up to a certain amount because I think they had room for over 400. But because there was also a cap up to 50 people total in the restaurant, that was the max they could do. Mm-hmm. Now we're up to no more than 100 inside. That moves them up a little bit. And then um, – so, you know, it, it's a wide range. A lot of it depends on the layout and size of your restaurant. Um, and, of course, we're also seeing a lot of restaurants that are choosing not to reopen indoor dining at all. Um, some of them are saying they're waiting for their restaurant workers to be – vaccinated, which is a process that currently could start on May 1st. May 1st is a ways away. Those goalposts might be moved forward. Um, People might be vaccinated sooner. But when you talk to those business owners who are waiting for indoor dining until the vaccine doses arrive in their workers' arms, you know, why, why are they making that call? Have you had any of those conversations about why they're waiting a bit? Well, right now, an issue I do hear about is, you know, building your staff back up. You've been closed off and on for a year. Some of your longtime employees may have decided to pursue a different uh, profession altogether. So you're sort of getting the team back together. And at, at this point, I think for the better, restaurant owners and managers are trying to be uh, uh, trying to take the comfort level of their staff into the equation as much as possible. Now that's not every restaurant. Some restaurants are just, you know, gung ho, let's open as much as we can. Uh, But the ones who've told me that they are waiting for the vaccine are ones where 
they really want to take the temperature of their staff, you know, figuratively and literally to make sure that they're okay with bringing people back indoors. Because as we know, this is an, an airborne virus. Uh, I reported last week about the safety level of dining indoors versus outdoors. You know, uh, the virus can build up indoors and that's how it spreads. Now, you know, how much that spread is happening in restaurants, uh, we're not totally sure about. The CDC said just last week that uh, it is happening in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like something obvious to people who are just, you know, if you've read about how this virus spreads, um, it's just more likely to happen indoors than outdoors. So hopefully, as you said, that May 1st date might move up a little bit and you can get frontline workers, including grocery store employees and restaurant workers, um, get their first uh, jab sometime in April. What's it feel like out there right now? You, I think, get out there a little bit more than I do to restaurants or bars just to see the situation. I mean, does it feel normal? Well, I had my first date out with my wife in about a year just last month. We went to a pretty fantastic (laughs) and luxurious uh, restaurant that exists entirely inside of yurts. Um, So this is pandemic dining. Uh, It's a pop-up for the restaurant Khan, which hasn't opened yet, but it's a new upcoming Haitian restaurant from Gregory Gourdet, who was uh, is known far and wide for appearing on Top Chef. Yeah, one of Portland's Mike, most famous chefs. I, I would argue that after, yeah, I mean, I think if he isn't already, he will be Portland's most famous chef uh, after his upcoming judging appearance on Top Chef in the Portland season. And it's pretty amazing experience. You know, you have your own little private yurt. It's heated from the with a little electric heater on yeah. the top. Uh, you have to, you know, collect your own silverware from the wall. It's hanging on the wall, and uh, there's a little speaker playing Whitney Houston and other pop songs. And you know, you can ask to have your all your food delivered to a little table outside, and then you bring it in. We didn't choose that option, but the default is just to place your dishes at the edge of the table. So your, uh, uh, your server is still going to be about six feet away from you at all times. And of course we pulled our masks up before they, when they approached, they kept their mask on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had our temperature checks when we checked, when we got there, which is not something I've seen before. And it seemed a little bit sci-fi to me, although we, we frankly have been doing a lot of takeout in the past year. So this was, uh, for the two of us, this was our first, as I said, our first date out and our first time, you know, dining somewhere uh, in a year. Well, go big, I guess. If you're if, if you're going to go inside, <laughs> go big. And uh, yeah, there were some negotiations around the expense report. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, did it did it feel like you know? Obviously, that's a a cut above or several cuts above, um, you know, maybe a, a, a typical night out. But did that feel like? you know, something that could be a a new type of normal, or is that just kind of a one-off experiential thing? Well, it's a one-off in the sense that it's like ending probably at the end of April. They're still, they're still negotiating um, how long it's going to last into the spring because they're, they are the yurt village as it's called is being housed at uh, a place called the red, which is an event center that. Uh, usually would be hosting weddings through the summer. I think it's got room for 2,000 people between the indoor and outdoor. At some point, the Red is going to want its space back. So the Yurt Village will have to, you know, pack up its tents and and move on. But the interesting thing about the Con Winter Village pop-up is that the two sectors of dining that got absolutely destroyed almost immediately last March were 
fine dining on one end and on the other end, buffets, because buffets just weren't allowed to operate. So any place that had a self-serve element to their operation just really struggled to figure out what to do. But on the other end, fine dining has been hit incredibly hard. And, you know, depending on how you, you know, some people might think of fine dining as anything with tablecloths, (laughs) but the truly like next level of fine dining where, you know, chefs are presenting 12 course menus and the price might be a hundred to $195 a head. Those places were by and large built around chef's counters or sushi counters, which uh, those seats are not even allowed right now. Bar seats are not allowed under the current COVID restrictions. So that level of fine dining, which might've only been eight or 10 restaurants in Portland has been totally crushed. And, you know, you can look at places that there might only be three or four of them that are even talking about reopening after the pandemic. You have, Beast, uh, which I know is a restaurant you've been to before, that is now operating as a market. Several others have closed completely. Um, you know, chefs have moved out of town. It's like it, it, for 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 that level of dining, this Con Winter Village may be an option. Doing a private dining yeah. pod, we'll see. Well, let's talk a little bit about takeout because, uh, like you said, you've been getting a lot of that, and it seems to uh, the city has evolved considerably in in its options for takeout and kind of how people can get that food to their homes. Is this feel like a, a permanent addition to our Portland dining experience, uh, having all these takeout options? I think so. I think it is in the sense that if you've invested the time and money to build an e-commerce site, essentially on your restaurant website, I don't know why you would take that away. And if you've built the relationships with third-party delivery systems. Now, you might be annoyed at them, and and their fees may rise after the pandemic, mm-hmm. because right now they're, the state has imposed restrictions on how much they can charge. If that changes after the pandemic, you know you might cut that part out. But if you've already built your online site, I don't see why you wouldn't still allow some takeout. And there's a lot of restaurants, especially in that mid-tier, below fine dining, that we were talking about, but maybe above counter service, there were a lot of restaurants that just didn't do takeout. It's just like St. Jack in Northwest Portland is a prime example of a place that has gone, uh, you know, they do have dining. I believe they even have indoor dining already, but they uh, went all in on takeout during the shutdown periods. And that's a restaurant. I don't know that anyone would have gone there to get steak frites to go, but all of a sudden, you know, now, uh, according to the chef, Aaron Barnett, he told me, they were selling 50, 60 burgers a night, which is like, you know, burgers weren't even what they were thought of. But I don't I don't see why you would take that element away from your business um, after all this is over. Yeah. And you have uh, customers who have been trained to, you know, know your system and uh, either go through one of those third parties or come in themselves and grab their food and dash. So we'll see. You know, we've had these periodic check-ins, Michael, over the last year, and we've talked about the state of the industry and how things are going and whatnot. How are you feeling now um, about, you know, the overall state of the industry and whether it's going to live on in uh, a vibrant way going forward? How are you feeling? I'm not sure. I think it's a bit too early to tell. Our colleague Mike Rogaway reported that some of the big fears about business closures didn't really come to pass. But I think for Portland restaurants specifically, it really was a bloodbath. And there are a lot of vacant spaces. And that presents, I think we may have talked about this last time, but that on the one hand, that presents great opportunity, maybe for people who didn't have an opportunity before. But we're also seeing some 
you know, expansion of chains and, you know, out of town uh, businesses moving into the market and take advantage of desperate landlords who just really need someone to fill that space. So it, it's a mixed bag and we're going to see how that shakes out. And on the other end, I know that there was a real, there was a real movement last year to improve restaurant culture, uh, you know, for, for women, for people of color, uh, uh, but also just change the sort of toxic environment around restaurants. And we had a reckoning around that in July and August. We had prominent chefs called out and some of them have left their positions. And, you know, now it feels like the big gears of this, you know, capitalist uh, uh, operation uh, that is our, our rest that, you know, fuels our restaurant scene are starting to grind back into motion. And, you know, I'm hearing from some workers that, you know, they do have to get back to work. Um, there is a, a new um, unemployment package, which is part of the $1.9 trillion uh, a, a deal that Biden just signed on Thursday. But uh, at some point, people are going to, they need jobs. People need to be paid. They have to get back to work. And I think it's going to take a little bit of time to see what lasting effect um, the desire for improved culture will have on restaurants. There's definitely a lot of lip service being paid to it right now. Uh, uh, Gregory Gorday, I would say, is doing more than lip service. He is, you know, paying his workers, uh, a, 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 you know, a flat wage that's, you know, maybe double minimum wage or a little less than double minimum wage plus tips. Uh, he's, you know, um, working with uh, staff that's made up largely of BIPOC women. And, um, you know, but we'll see, because I'd I be like, every every new restaurant I speak with talks about inclusivity and wanting to make change. But, you know, it's going to be tough uh, getting things back going. And we'll just have to see how much that actually pans out in the next few months and years. And do you envision yourself eating indoors more, you know, in the next several months? Or are you going to kind of be on wait and see mode? I'm on wait and see mode. I mean, I definitely want to see Multnomah County get into the lower risk category. Um, right now, there was a, a run of days where Multnomah County cases were very low. We were having two cases per 100,000 people um, on, on some days or three. And then just before we were recording this podcast, uh, there were a couple days that were a bit higher and they maybe we would have hypothetically been in the high risk if you extrapolated that over two weeks. So we're just going to have to see, um, you know, the yurt dining was a very special uh, one-off thing for us. We got a babysitter, which we haven't done in a year. And, uh, you know, is it indoors? Is it outdoors? I mean, we, yes, we were indoors, but also we were the only people in there. So the only air we were sharing was, you know, ours. Um, for me, going indoors and eating someplace, you know, I, I wrote recently about how to do that safely, and I would say I'm definitely looking for open windows. You know, if you have big roll-up garage windows, and I'm, I don't know if there's that much difference between sitting just indoors or sitting just on the sidewalk outside of those. So that's something I'm probably going to feel comfortable doing pretty soon. Um, and yeah, I think we're just going to have to keep an eye on the case counts um, and see where things go. Well, thanks for uh, taking time to talk about it and enjoy the takeout. My pleasure. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. And tell a friend. Help spread the word. 
The best way to support our journalism is through a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod supports. Until next time.